0: Hello, hello. Welcome to the Back Porch Podcast. I'm Corey Dempsey, and I am here today with Spencer Sherry, a filmmaker who has recently gotten some rights to a pretty big author's project. Spencer, what do you got?
1: Uh, I have acquired the rights to do a Stephen King short story titled The Monkey that no one has ever taken a swing at before. So I'm excited to be the first person to attempt it.
0: That's super exciting, dude. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk to Spencer a little bit about that short film that he's planning to make. And, you know, since we're talking about a Stephen King adaptation, we are going to be talking about our top five favorite Stephen King adaptations that have been made. He's made something like, well, he hasn't made, but there have been like upwards of 80 adaptations at, at this least. Point.
1: and the amount that are on the docket... Yeah, that are about to be dropped in the next five years are insane. Yeah,
0: it's insane. Like crazy amount. So we're going to talk about, you know, what we love about those adaptations and what makes King so adaptable and what makes his story so ripe for that. Before we get into all that, we are going to talk about our beer real quick. Spencer, you brought your own. It's not something every guest does, so I'm, I'm pumped about it.
1: What do you got? You know, I don't really know the rules of engagement here, um, but I uh, swung by Minogues on my way and spent probably a little too much time. I was late scour scouring, looking for uh, thematically appropriate beers, and I think I found one. It's called Love Your Friends, Die Laughing, New England Double IPA from Non-Sequitur Beer Project uh two two sentiments that seem to be prevalent in King's work.
0: I'd say so. yeah, definitely. Uh, I am going to be drinking the original source from our good friends over at Unified Beer Works. The original source obviously coming from these movies being adapted from King's original works. So uh, that's what we're gonna do and we're gonna get into this episode. So before we get into talking about kind of the larger Stephen King adaptations, Spence, let's take... (laughs) That was weird. I don't know why I just called you Spence. No, Spence is good. (laughs) Spence works. Mr. Sherry, Spencerino. So Spence slash Mr. Sherry, talk to us about your upcoming Stephen King adaptation, The Monkey. You know, this is not something that's been adapted before, as you mentioned. Like, how did you find this story... What drew you to it? What What's it about? Like, just give us a give us a little bit about that.
1: So, uh, last year, it's it's one of those little COVID Cinderella stories. Last year, I was reading a lot of Stephen King, as I, I have. I started reading him in high school, and um, I just was going through short stories, which is easy, digestible, real quick. I could read it in a night or two, and um, and I just came across this one, The Monkey, and it's the story about this young father, who's Two kids, Pete and Dennis, find uh, this wind-up, cymbal-clapping monkey in their attic. They're cleaning out their aunt's attic, I think. And those they,
0: things are so terrifying. They're,
1: yeah, and I, they're <laughs> terrifying. I think mostly because he made them terrifying, um, and brought that to everyone's uh, the forefront of everyone's social conscious. Um, but uh, so yeah, so they find it in the attic, and then the dad freaks out and uh, it turns out that when he was a kid, it keeps flashing back to when he was a child, he found it in his attic, and the origins of it are kind of unclear. His dad was a merchant marine, and he traveled around a lot, And it's, but he disappeared after a couple of years, and so it's kind of implied that maybe this is one of the things he brought back from one of his trips, um, but they don't really know where it came from. Uh, so every time it clapped its symbols, somebody close to him would die, and so he has kind of been haunted by this for a big portion of his childhood he ended up throwing it down a well and that was the last time he saw it and then now 20 years later it's back, his kids find it in their old aunt's attic and he freaks out and now has to try to prevent it from hurting anybody else that is in his life which is his immediate family now but it's great, it's this really amazing uh, I mean just full of great drama which is why I think King works so well is this the how the father is wrestling with these feelings of loving one of his sons more than the other one the the younger one Pete is I think it's like seven or eight years old um, and Dennis is 11 and starting to rebel a little bit and take an attitude and so Hal's wrestling with these realizations that he's kind of being a little emotionally and sometimes physically abusive towards one of his two kids and how do you Reconcile, genuinely loving one of your sons more than the other one. So the, the the whole story, as well as the supernatural element of it, has that undertone of you know a father and what it means to be a father. Um, so I read this and loved it, and uh, I knew that King had this program called Dollar Babies. Uh, that he's been doing since the 70s, I think, where he lets young filmmakers adapt his some of his short stories for a dollar. And he gives them non-commercial, non-exclusive rights. And uh, he... When I read this story, I said immediately, this is awesome, I want to do this one. I heard about the program from a friend and was like, I'm in, this is, this is the one. And so I spent two months, three months in COVID writing it, and then I went to apply for the program and... It wasn't on the list. And there's a very short list of ones that he lets people do that are either not his best work or just very hard to adapt. Right. So I thought it was dead in the water for about a year. So, how did
0: you end up bringing that to life? Like, what was that process of getting the right sense? This dollar babies thing kind of didn't work out for
1: you. Uh, I wouldn't let it go because it was one of my favorite things that I'd written so far so I found out who his uh, agency was and found out who his agent was and I just found out his contact info and managed to reach out and kind of uh, I, I don't say that I misrepresented who I am or what I was trying to do but I definitely was vague at the beginning until he uh, reached back out to me and, and kind of gave me better contact info when I talked to him directly. And originally, uh, after I pitched it to him, I was told, this is hysterical, you're not famous enough, and we need someone with more uh, producer credits that Steve, he said Steve, would be aware of. <laughs> um, essentially, fuck you, no. Um, check, and he said, check the dollar baby list. Do one of those. So I kind of crawl into a corner for about a day, absorbing that information before I emailed him back and was like, Hey, I like, I thought this was a dollar baby. I want to do this because I love the story, not because I want to try to make money off of it. So, uh, what did I say? I was like, it seems like my two options that you're telling me are a, I can formally request that you extend the dollar baby contract to this story, even though it says right on your website, never do that. Or I have to find a, another producer with better credentials to keep talking to you and keep taking up more of your time with what <laughs> I want to do. And I think he acknowledged that there was very little to risk if they just let me do the Dollar Baby one. I mean, that's, that's awesome. I mean persistence right (laughs) yeah so the next day um he didn't actually even respond to me that was stephen king's assistant who kind of manages the dollar baby program sent me a contract in the mail a contract uh via my email and said congrats this is not something that i usually am able to do this one isn't on my list this is a special contract good luck so, and then I, and then I emailed his agent back saying, Hey, thank you so much for the opportunity. like, I really appreciate it. And still no response. Right. So I think he's happy to have hot potatoed me to other people. <laughs> I mean, you, but you get to do what you want to do, right? So And now you know, I get to do it. Works out. Now I'm the first person to ever take a swing at it. So
0: that's, that's awesome, dude. I'm,
1: I'm, I'm pumped for you. Thanks man. It's very yeah, exciting. It's, uh, it's a whirlwind. It's been a lot to process. And apart from just loving
0: the story, is there anything in particular that, like, really makes you want to make it? Is there anything with that kind of father-son relationship that, like, speaks to you? Or is there something about this story that, like, you you have to make this thing? It's
1: not necessarily the father-son. Dad. I mean, I had a very happy childhood, and I love my dad, and I, I think he loves me just as much, <laughs> maybe a little more than the other ones. But, um... So you're the most loved child. <laughs> now I am after I got this opportunity, probably. <laughs> um, uh, no, it's just the it's the elements of horror that I love, and, and King has mastered so many of them, but I really love the suspense, and I really love the, not so much the in-your-face scares, but the tension and the waiting for the other shoe to drop, and that's what this story is all about. It's all about when is it going to start clapping? Oh, excuse me. Good beer. Uh, how can we prevent this from happening? It's It's kind of a story about the inevitable and facing that. Yeah. And so, in my adaptation that I've made from this, I kind of really lean into that theme of this is a fear of the inevitable. Right. And
0: You know, to the extent that you're able to tell us, because I know this is still in development. You wrote the script, but like, can you describe kind of your vision for bringing this to the screen? Like, what what are you imagining for this kind of adaptation onto film?
1: Sure. Yeah. So this is a little bit different. I'm kind of taking a little bit of a leap with this. So in an attempt to uh, one not have to get into some of the more difficult, costly things to film, which is a lot of the flashbacks as to when the father was a, a boy mm-hmm. and period piece, and there in, it involves a dead dog, which is a pretty horrific scene that I don't know if me or viewers would be too thrilled to, to have to witness. Um, I wanted to really make it my own, and I kind of had this idea where I could see the continuation of the story. So where the original story is a... The present is when this father and his two kids uh, find it again and it flashes back to when the father was a kid. I'm shifting the narrative actually up one generation. So the present in this film will be my own original work based off of these characters where they have been over the last 20 years and how the ev- the events of the original story have shaped their relationships with each other. Um, and then I will be in the style of the original short flashing back to the best parts and the most visually striking parts of the original stories present for context um, so I'm kind of taking a little it's almost a sequel adaptation and I hope that it will be well received I think that where I've taken the story is interesting and true to the relationships and the themes of the original book.
0: And so what you mentioned like is setting it that's just a, it's a, it's almost like a cost saving because then you don't have to do all the costumes, all the production design stuff to get like a specific look.
1: Part of it's that. Part right. of it is it, it, it's convenient. I wouldn't say that that was the the motive, the main motivator. Right. Um, but it does. It's it not. Helps. It's not bad. Yeah, it helps. <laughs> it helps save when I'm when I'm trying to raise money for this. Uh, a little bit easier to convince people to donate. Mm-hmm. That sounds
0: exciting. And are is there anything? Obviously, this kind of clapping monkey is a key to this whole thing. Have mm-hmm. you found one oh, yeah.
1: for it? <laughs> oh, yeah. So I did a... Promotional video for the Indiegogo, Mm -hmm. and I found one of these on eBay. One of the I think it's pretty much original. The I think it's called the Jolly, the Jolly Symbol Clapping Monkey toy or something like that. It's from the 50s or 60s in Japan, and so I found one on eBay. And uh, I was told that it worked, and uh, the batteries need a little bit of finagling, and maybe some aluminum foil was necessary. So I have not messed with the electric components of it yet. But when you move the head, it does clap the symbols. It's about I don't know, ten inches high, just as freaky as I've always imagined that they would be. Um, so yeah, so I found one and I put it in the promotional video. So nice. I will be keeping keeping that one for a while, I think, as a result of doing this film.
0: And so you're in the pre-production process right now, correct? I'm in pre-pre production. I'm still
1: okay. I'm still fundraising and trying to get money and crowdfunding. There's an Indiegogo page that's live my Instagram and Facebook have been as engaging as possible, trying to get people to either participate in, I had a logo contest trying to find a, a good logo from the area. Um, and we just found it. My actually cousin who lives in Saratoga made just a bitchin' one that I'm pumped with, but I'm, I'm I saw it on
0: Instagram. It looks
1: amazing. It's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. I'm really thrilled with it. We had a lot of good submissions and so it was hard to choose. And I, uh, the top, three runners up I'm making their designs into stickers as well to be just distributed for promotional material with the rest of the film. Um, So yeah, I'm I'm really trying to make this something that is Capital Region centric and a lot of people that have reached out to me and, and my network or just acquaintances that I've heard of or worked with before or no friends that have worked with before have reached out in, you know, in, in interest to take a swing at this with me. And so I'm excited to really make this a regional production that everyone can kind of put their mark on one way or the other.
0: Right. And is this going to be... Are, are you directing this? Yeah. And is this your directorial this debut? Will,
1: yeah, this will be the official directorial debut. I've... Uh, I tried to make a film... And was a little over ambitious about three years ago when I first moved back to the area. I lived in New York for about a year, getting into the industry and PAing and working in locations and all that. Right. And when I moved back up, I just shot right up and, and found a couple uh, friends of friends that wanted to make stuff. And I tried uh, to shoot this movie called Sakandaga. For it would have been probably about an hour long, and uh, right at the finish line, tripped, and everything that was on the hard drive fried in a thunderstorm while it was plugged into the computer so you know make your backups folks I learned that lesson the hard way and I will have backups upon backups upon backups for this one but yeah so this will be release wise the official first thing that I'm directing
0: that's awesome and are you kind of in the are you going to start hiring and doing
1: casting soon? What, yeah, once the once the crowdfunding's over and I know what the budget is, then I'll know who I can afford and who I can <laughs> negotiate with. Um, it's it's really mostly I don't want to make anybody a promise that I can't keep or Pulse. a deal that I can't pay for. And so I don't want to tell somebody, wow, that sounds like a really reasonable rate. You're, you're on, let's do it. And then this thing shits the bed and I have a thousand dollars to work with. And right. you know that's just uncomfortable for everybody. So I'm waiting until the funding is over. A lot of people have very graciously reached out from the area and from New York and from LA. I am. There are so many composers in the world that reach out to you when you're doing a cool thing. Right. I'm gonna have, there's one from Germany that that got a hold of me on Instagram. So a lot of people have expressed interest and I think that the people in this area specifically are the most likely to just donate a lot of time and energy and I wanna reward that and help them because there's a lot of really Awesome, talented people in this area that are making films right now. Great. I've had a chance to talk with a lot of them. I really Yeah, I was going to say, it's, yeah, it's you know. It's great, yeah. Joe Geidel was the one that got me this particular interview. So <laughs> thanks, Joe. Cheers to you, buddy. Loved to avoid. It was the best thing I've ever seen from this area, honestly. Uh, yeah,
0: so before we kind of move on to our discussion about Stephen King, where can they find you at this Indiegogo, Instagram?
1: Uh, the, the Indiegogo, I believe if you go on Indiegogo and put in the Monkey Short film, it'll be... I hope the only one that comes up. Um, but on Instagram and Facebook, it's at the Monkey TheMonkeyShort. Um, and from there, you can find the Indiegogo page. So get on there and help me <laughs> in this clear advertising ploy. <laughs> you got to plug your shit. Man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what it's been about, just coming up with unique and interesting ways to get people excited and involved and spread the word. Yeah, for sure. No, I'm I'm
0: excited. I'm gonna donate.
1: Thanks, man.
0: <laughs> so uh, let's transition to talk about Stephen King. And you you mentioned this a little bit before, but I want to go into it a little bit deeper. You know, what is it about Stephen King's work that makes him so adaptable, and what makes it so what 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 draws filmmakers in? Because there's been so many amazing filmmakers who have adapted his work. Yeah. So like, what is it about his work that you think draws these filmmakers to these projects?
1: they are, I mean, other than just being one of the hottest novelists in the time period that I think a lot of the filmmakers were growing up in, but the work is just so visual. Uh, It's just the right amount of campy. It takes itself just about as seriously as it should while being technically unbelievable. I mean, his, his writing style and the way he... Conveys these these themes and and human emotion is just, it's untouchable uh, while being blended with these just insane supernatural and horror elements that I think he's just got the best of both worlds as far as his balance goes between... Uh, and a lot of it is, is corny and just goofy and campy, and he doesn't try to be anything other than that. And I think that that lends itself to just fun visual filmmaking that a lot of other horror movies are a little bit more dour or serious. I mean,
0: that was something that upon rewatching a lot of these mm-hmm. that I found kind of so striking that most of them are like just a fun ride oh, oh, like yeah. and a fun hang. Yep. And there's so many horror movies that just aren't like that. So it was really enjoyable. Like, even the ones that aren't that great, it's still a fun time. Are so much fun. Like, Children of the Corn? Yep. Bad movie. A
1: lot of fun. So much. <laughs> it's And the thing about it, too, is that it really is just a, a a wild romp and just kind of turn your brain off if you're not having a good time and go along for the ride. They're, they're just so much fun to watch. And the ones that are the best are the ones that really lean into that, I think. Yeah. They have stood the test of time over other ones that try to be too serious. It's like, if you're not having fun, then it's it's not quite Stephen King. For
0: sure. I mean, I, I think there's just something so populist about his stories that it just appeals to everyone. And, mm-hmm. like, it, it it's obviously made money throughout time. Right. Like, every one of these films, like, it has a built-in audience. It has the King audience. Yes. It's going to go see it no matter what. Yep. And just a lot of these great filmmakers see something in these stories. You know, you got Kubrick, the Palma, like the list goes
1: on and on. Carpenter. Yeah. Yep. And they all just take a swing at these things. And it is in, in essence with, like we were talking about the quantity of them, it's a snowball. I mean, yeah. right now, and they've just been getting hotter and hotter properties and we're seeing two, three, four, five a year of his work. And now that the streaming services are out, it's just people can make those deals. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a huge commercial hit to perpetuate these stories. It's like when people, when studios and and streaming services see people responding to them, they order five more.
0: And it it felt like they kind of went away for a while. Mm -hmm. And then the massive success of it Mm -hmm. just now everyone wants to adapt King and you get Dr. Sleep and you get the Outsider miniseries and yes, like eight other ones that are coming up. That's just like...
1: <laughs> uh, Gerald's Game, they did... They're they're finding new clever ways to adapt him to. I haven't seen it, but I heard that um, Midnight Mass was somehow tied into some of his work or really reliant on some of his work. I watched Midnight Mass...
0: I know that it's an original Mike Flanagan story, but there's definitely a lot of King DNA in there.
1: Yeah, because Mike Flanagan has done two adaptations now of King. He's done yeah. Doctor Sleep and Gerald's Game. And Gerald's Game, yeah, yeah. Who he is brilliant. By the Mike way.
0: Flanagan is incredible. Midnight He'll, Mass is incredible. You need to watch that. Like I, soon.
1: I, I, I've been dying to, and I just haven't had the right night to binge it and keep myself up. <laughs> so, before we get to our list, I feel like there's a couple whales. We left off. We did. Because they're, so, uh, they're, they're so big. They're such big whales, and they're such an easy target as a result that it just seemed like a shame to travel back. You know, the, the, We took the road less traveled on these, I think.
0: Yeah, it seemed a little uninteresting, but I do want to acknowledge them. So let's talk mm-hmm. about The Shining for a quick moment.
1: What's one your one relationship to hated? this movie? Yeah, yeah. I know. Like, <laughs> the one that he hated above all else. And, I, and it's and probably I,
0: the peak of the adaptations, at least to me.
1: Objectively. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it was the number one movie, and any time that someone brings up a Stephen King movie, it's The Shining and how that turned out. And I, I equal parts enjoy it and think it's great and also understand why King had such a problem with it.
0: So you've read The Shining.
1: Yeah. So,
0: I mean, for people that don't know, what is kind of the issue that King has with this adaptation?
1: The two big issues that he has as far as I've read and can tell are one, uh, I think he's quoted as saying, "The first shot you see Jack Nicholson in you know that that's a crazy person in the movie true and in right and and that part of that is Jack Nicholson's face. We all know what that looks like <laughs> and how unfortunate his life <laughs> must be if he wasn't famous um, but uh, but yeah, you knew he was crazy from the beginning and in King's book, and this is I think the problem that A lot of people have trying to adapt him is that so much of his work is such beautiful inner monologue and watching these characters change over the course of the story. I mean, Pet Cemetery, so far, as far as I'm concerned, hasn't gotten and will never get a great adaptation of it because that entire movie is just a man slowly going crazy in the first person and rationalizing and rationalizing each insane decision he makes, um, until it explodes. And so the shining, I think in the book is, is similar where Jack is just kind, he's a normal guy with a normal family and he just starts to lose it. And you, you get to see that transformation. Whereas again, Jack Nicholson is great but he's a psychopath. He's, a, he's an insane person from, from frame one. And so I think that he had an issue with that, that there wasn't a whole lot of true character development from him. And also, the, in the book, the hotel blows up. There's, there's no uh, icy, you know, kind of anticlimactic ending for him. It's just the boiler room explodes and that's it. So that was, and uh, Halloran lives too, which is, he's heavily featured in the um, the sequel, Yeah. Doctor Sleep, which as a book, loved. It was one of my favorite ones of his that I've read.
0: Just to acknowledge it, the movie I loved for about an hour and 45 minutes, mm-hmm. and then it started to try and redo The Shining, and that's when it lost me.
1: Yeah. All the original You mean Doctor Sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Doctor Sleep. Yeah. It was an okay movie. Dr. Sleep? Dr. Sleep. Right. It. No, yeah, Dr. Sleep. Dr. <laughs> Sleep is okay.
0: The Shining is a 10 out of 10. I mean, <laughs> to be honest, King, like, I know you're not going to listen to this and you won't hear it, and that's fine. Yeah, but if you you're are, You're wrong about do. The Shining. <laughs> like, it is objectively better than you made it. And I'm sorry, but, like, Kubrick's Vision, oh, my God, it's
1: one of the greatest films I've ever seen. Straight up. <laughs> it's it's a good film. His His words, Mr. King... <laughs>
0: I know you can't. Don't take
1: don't take my movie away.
0: (laughs) The other one, the other whale that I want to acknowledge is The Mist. For a brief Mm -hmm. moment, Um, you know, objectively, The Shining and The Mist are probably one and two for me.
1: Interesting. Um,
0: I didn't include The Mist simply because we talked about this movie extensively on a different episode, a Sci-Fi Oscars episode. But I absolutely love this movie. But I want to hear your thoughts on The Mist. What do you? How do you feel about it?
1: I remember I read the short story last year around the same time that I read The Monkey and a bunch of other stuff. And so I remember really liking the story. And I hadn't seen the movie since it, I think, probably not since it came out. I think I was too young for mom and dad to let me watch a movie when it came out. Um, excuse oh, me.
0: seven? How old are you?
1: I am 27 years old. So in 07 I would have been in 7th grade. Okay, maybe My, that is. Too I soon. was if I wasn't 13, I wasn't allowed to watch PG-13 movies and even sometimes after that. Fair enough.
0: I'm 7 years older, so makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. in high
1: school. Um, yep. <laughs> All right. It would have been enjoyable for you, not for me. Um so, yeah, so then I, I revisited the movie, I don't know, probably around the same time, about a year ago. And um, and, I, I, and I liked it. I thought, again, it's that, it's insane. It's totally absurd. And Darabont, who directed that movie, as well as Shawshank and the Green Mile, really leaned into the absurdity and just let it play out. And the C, the CGI back then is
0: It's the only thing that doesn't hold hysterical. up about that movie. It's hysterical. Uh, it's <laughs> unfortunate. Um, I, I, I just love The Mist. Because and again, this is a different ending than King's. Yes. And it is an ending that did not pull its punch one bit. Nope. It is a pit of despair ending, and I think an appropriate ending. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I really appreciate that. Mrs. Carmody is one of the like all-time hateable villains. Mm-hmm. Like on the level of Nurse Ratchet, when oh, she yeah. gets hers, you're just like, yes,
1: yes, thank you. Thank you. He's really good at those. Yeah. He's really good at making insufferable Villains, whether you know it's Carrie's mom, or Whew. or in the in the Dead Zone, it's uh, Johnny's mom. I think it's John in the Dead or Zone. Or the the Martin Sheen
0: character in the Dead Zone, who's basically oh yeah, like who's yeah, a, who's a Trump avatar.
1: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, he uh, he predicted a lot, a lot, very fresh. You ever uh, have you ever read Running Man? I've never seen the movie, but Running Man, there's this the kind of climax of the story is this guy who's been forced to play this horrific game by the corporate elite to for to run away and you know, be hunted for their pleasure. And so there's this big scene at the end where the the general public, the poor oppressed people, are fighting back against the police who are trying to restrain <laughs> them and while letting and, and it's this You're reading it, and it came out in 80-something. I don't remember. But it's like, oh, uh, we just lived through a lot of this. Yeah, just lived that. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of... And that's why I like him so much. That's why he's so good. The the character... It's just people. He's just talking about people and very normal people emotions and how they respond in certain situations and just kind of sees the natural progression of some of the more unpleasant directions that we're headed.
0: All right, so... Before we get to the list, the one thing I wanted to ask, because I I was doing something specific, you know, I wanted to acknowledge a couple of the classics in my top five, Mm -hmm. but I also wanted to bring some attention to some lesser kind of known films, same, some things that I wanted to do. So was there anything else that you were kind of trying to accomplish in terms of maybe like... The range of his work with your with your list. It was
1: the same thing. I was trying to um, unearth someone's modern and past that have you know maybe been overlooked a little bit or maybe they're just not in the zeitgeist as much. Um, and and while I, I I wanted a nice range, yeah, of things uh, from classic some supernatural, some supernatural, some, some grounded, yeah, yeah. classic and modern. And so I kind of I tried to get a smattering of everything.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so many great works that like.
1: It's, it's hard, tough, man. It's hard, and it's hard. I mean, when you see a bad one, you know it's bad. But there are so many ones that are middle of the road that can be made a case for or against. That it's just worth including them and arguing it out. You know, yeah. And like I, I
0: really wanted to include Cujo and Creepshow, which objectively are very middle of the road. I've never but are seen so Cujo. much fun.
1: I've never seen Cujo, but reading the book, what that was back when uh, King was on a lot of cocaine and drinking a lot. And I think he's on the record as saying he really doesn't remember writing most of Cujo. (laughs) And as far as the books that I've read of his, it is by far the darkest, most grim, unhappy ending you can imagine. And they had to change the ending of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, to... to yeah, it's it's just
0: a bonkers movie. And like, honestly, the only reason I ended up not including it is because it's just unforgivable what they put the dog actor through in terms of like makeup <laughs> and whatever else. Like, I just, I can't abide by it.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Sorry, Peter. All right. So we are going to transition to our top five list. Spencer, a.k.a. Spence, a.k.a. Mr. Sherry, you are the guest, which means you get to start us off. What is your number five Stephen King adaptation?
1: My number five is The Dead Zone, starring Christopher Walken and Martin Sheen. I'm surprised this isn't higher. I love this movie. Interesting. Yeah, I liked <laughs> it, too. I like the book. A lot. So this is one of the ones that I've, I've read the book mm-hmm. and really liked it. Christopher Walken's so, so good. So I you know, he's now caricatured and so as This was like right before Yeah, this is right before that. This is right when it's before like I'm a serious
0: actor. Playing a parody of himself. Yes. And I like the parody of himself.
1: I oh I my did. god, it's so good. It's it's such a good <laughs> bit. Um but yeah, no, I, I I liked this movie a lot. I remember being really impressed with it. I think I watched it last year or two years ago, and was just really impressed with what they were able to do with it because it seemed to me like another one of the traps of this is mostly kind of inner monologue and watching this person change. And it was it was just impressive what they were able to pull off with it, narratively.
0: Agreed. And I got a lot of taxi driver, kind of Travis Bickle vibes mm-hmm. from his character, but then in the end it kind of flips and it doesn't go that direction. And I appreciated that about it. I don't, I don't want to spoil it, but like, right. I, I did really appreciate that kind of direction that it went in in the story and in the film.
1: Yeah, and Martin Sheen's villain is like we were saying, just so good, just so So amazing. There I remember them talking about the um king talking about the book and in the in the book, I'm trying to remember he he like sh- kill like kicks a dog to death. In the beginning, he shows up to someone's house. I think he's a salesman at first before he becomes a politician. He shows up to somebody's house, and the guy either isn't home or shuts him out or something like that. And then he, you can kind of tell he's a little bit of a sleaze bag, but then he kicks the guy's dog to death when he's not home. And it's like, oh, and it just immediately wrenches you into. That notion of like what people are hiding beneath the facade of them, and that was how that ended. I don't. uh, In the does he hold the baby up in the movie? Yes. Yeah. No, and that that's that's what it was in the book too.
0: Right, and that's what ends up, you know, kind of quote unquote to use the parlance of our time, cancels him. Yes, as opposed to like it works out um even though it doesn't go like exactly as planned it still works out it still in works. that sense
1: and i love that i love those are my favorite types of stories the ones that like what the audience expects to get accomplished through the character does but while still being tragic in some sense and it doesn't it doesn't go to plan and maybe the character suffers because of it or maybe they even die because of it but something works inadvertently that you do you still get to see the arc and get the 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 release and the catharsis of where they were trying to take that character
0: yeah for sure and you know I, i i think this is one of the better adaptations of his work And I also think, like, this is one that stands out in the Cronenberg filmography in terms of just being, you know,
1: not body horror, being more straightforward, and he still kills it. But, yeah, there's still that, like, dreaminess and, you know, Christopher waking up in the room full of flames. And the
0: loneliness that's kind of so prevalent in Cronenberg's films, I feel like.
1: I'm trying to remember. I wish I could remember it. At the time when I watched this movie, when he is, somebody calls him out. On being a fraud with his th- oh, and he says, uh, "Tell me when I'm gonna die or something like that." Tell me the, the
0: reporter during the, reporter the interview. Yeah,
1: tells yes. me when I'm gonna die. And Christopher Walken's performance in that scene is just so scary, Dynamite. so diabolical, and so just like yeah, no, 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 you're gonna. I think he said it, he said no, 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 you're gonna hear me, you're gonna listen, no, 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 not no. I ca- I can't remember what the specific line is, but I remember loving it and just like wow, that's scary. That's so <laughs> to the point.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, great pick. I I love this movie. Highly, highly recommended. Kind of an anomaly in the Cronenberg filmography if you're not into the body horror thing. This is a good entryway, I think. Uh, I'm going to go to my number five, and it is 2007, 2007, 2008, something like that. Uh, 1408.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: This is not my favorite, but a highly underrated one, I feel like.
1: I just This is one of the ones that I watched within the last couple weeks to prepare for this. And yeah. I remember thinking it was corny and like meh the first time I watched it. And I still... To an extent, think it's a little bit corny because it is. I mean, it is. it's his performance. It's uh, John Cusack's performance. It, but I liked it more on this viewing. That it's purposeful, I, I, I think. Yeah, I think it is too. I appreciate it a lot more. And I, I read a. I didn't read the short story, but I read a couple like little blurbs from it, and was like, oh, okay, this was this was the intention. This was the character the entire time.
0: Yeah, and it's another one we kind of talked about the, or we mentioned it briefly. But this is one where Cusack is playing a clear avatar for Stephen King. Yes. He is a horror writer who goes to these kind of places where paranormal activity has been reported and he, you know, he writes about it, but he doesn't actually believe any of it. No. He's just doing it to sell books. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in this kind of room that the paranormal activity comes up in, like like in a lot of these movies, he's forced to face his trauma, yes, his past that is haunting him and he's not really addressing and I think Cusack's performance is great. Jackson is also amazing, but I didn't realize, especially like when I went back to it this time, he's in like 10 minutes of the movie,
1: maybe. They're right in the beginning. Yeah. That's it. And I love, and I love the beginning of the movie. I do. I really love how hard he pushes him to not do the thing. And it's relentless. The scene between them is and the, amazing. Yeah. They're playing chicken. Yeah. The entire time. And Jackson's just insistence and, and, uh, John Cusack's character is just... I, Mike, I think his name is, is just waiting for him to drop the gag and drop the facade. i like, oh, okay, I'm just doing it to like... This is what we do. We try to sell rooms this way. and build interest and blah, 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 And he just never does. And it goes on a lot longer than I think a normal story or movie would go on to really hammer home that like, no, 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 this is fucked up. There's real shit up there. And it just... The, and at a certain point, it like... It's scary... The Harbinger character is scary, and then it crosses into like, okay, this is like, got it, it's silly. And then when you go far enough past that, it gets scary again. Agreed. And that's what I like about that. No, I mean, because when
0: he's first kind of reckoning with the odd activities that are going on in this room, it's goofy. Yes. And he thinks it's good, and that's purposeful, right? Mm -hmm. Because like a person who's a skeptic like this going into a situation... Of course it's going to be goofy. Yeah,
1: it's kind of inherently reflective of his feelings toward it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then
0: as he realizes it's more real, it gets, it more, gets real. more real. And that's something that I just love and appreciate this movie. I don't particularly like the ending. I will say that. Uh, I won't say what the ending is, but it's one where I think it pulls its punch a little bit. A little bit I also ambiguous. don't really know the
1: ending of the original story, too.
0: I don't. I, I, like I, I mentioned this to you, I, I haven't read much King.
1: It's it's interesting the way uh, yeah you, you mentioned the pulling the punches and that's and we're gonna talk about a little bit more punch pulling when we get deeper into the adaptation picked. yeah but and and it almost seems like King also kind of goes through different stages of his stories where he is pulling punches where yeah. writing Cujo and Christine as opposed to things like. Uh, what was I just thinking of the other day where I was like... Oh, was kind of, or even Doctor Sleep. Yeah. Doctor Sleep, kind of you expect worse fate. You know, It's he's been writing happier endings as he's aged as opposed to really, really not happy endings. The so it, it's interesting to see, partly in these adaptations, how they pull King's punches and if there are punches to pull. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree. Uh, let's go to your number four. What do you got? I don't remember. When did, what, <laughs> what, what was my rank? My. I believe
0: it was a TV miniseries that you had.
1: Is that what I decided? I probably did decide that. Yeah. So the uh, the Outsider, on HBO, uh, with Jason Bateman, kind of. Briefly. Briefly directed they, the first two episodes. He always d- oh, so good. He's so good. Ozark. Then, like, I Ozark's just, one of my favorites.
0: It, that that was one of the stories I read. He it was butting up against Ozark, so he could only do the first two. And like executive producer and then to, he had to, to go do them. season three of Ozark, so he like left. But Interesting.
1: Like, he he
0: kind of shepherded the project, but that's
1: so that oh, right I that's, know, that's that wish. was the 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 bait and switch that they did, where they really they did the Brian Cranston and Godzilla move, yeah, which I've always both admired and hated. Um, but yeah, I w- I was bummed. I I liked. I thought it was a Jason Bateman product, and which that was a dream come true when I heard Jason Bateman was doing a Stephen King thing. Lost my mind. So yeah, so when they, when they did that, in, in, and in that way too, they let you do a whole episode where you think that he's going to be the focus and this is going to be a trial about him and then just totally unceremoniously remove him in the beginning of the second episode. That felt diabolical and I respect it. And
0: I rewatched the first episode in preparation for this mm-hmm. and there's just so much there that lets you know it's not about that at all. Mm-hmm. Because this is a story where it seems like it's about one thing. It seems like it's about solving this kind of child murder. But as they're uncovering the details of this, it's very clear there's just things that just don't add up Yeah, at there's all. more whoopsies. There's so many things that just like to explore here. And that's really what the thing is about. And, and I love that about it.
1: Yes, and part of why and I And now wanna,
0: I'm rewatching the whole fucking series uh, because so of you. It's, it's so, so good. Fun. And I'm it's, not mad. It's just like, wow.
1: It's so good. Ben Mendelsohn is incredible in it yep. as just the somber, brooding detective who's, it's slow, just like everyone else in, in King's novels, slowly getting his mind changed to what is possible and what's reality and believing in, quote-unquote, ghosts and these things. And so that's why, actually, I... I Part of why I wanted to include a miniseries in this is because I think that more of King's work would benefit from given the series Molder. treatment. Yeah. Because if exactly what you just said, it starts off being a normal drama. It's a- one thing, and then it's it's a one thing, and then it just slowly twists and creeps into this other supernatural thing that's bigger than everyone thought it was, and and un- literally unbelievable, and watching characters be forced to confront. Unbelievable things Which usually Thematically ties into Their trauma conveniently Is Is the story And then that's part of it And so Again we're gonna get Into some more films That I've watched recently That I'm like if This was what they left out That I really wanted to see And if it had been A miniseries I would've loved it right. Even more And they would've got time To get into it But that's why I like The Outsider The Outsider really Just leans into the drama of it And that That slow burn And that Slowly Realizing that things Aren't what they thought they were
0: and just so many phenomenal characters the Cynthia Ervio character Holly Gibney unbelievable oh my god I loved her the lawyer character I forget his name right now but like he's along for the journey yep everyone is giving such a phenomenal performance and it takes it in so many directions and honestly it's one of the things with Supernatural where everything that they explain makes complete sense to me and is set up so well Mm mm-hmm with the demon that's feeding off these
1: different versions of grief.
0: Yes, yeah, and, and families, yeah, and,
1: and attacking. That was something I loved about this is that, and something like, you didn't expect at all. But then it com- makes complete
0: sense the way yes. they sh- set it up and explored it.
1: Yeah, and that's what makes him so good with with these elements in the storytelling is that he he finds fears and then kind of generalizes them and then reshapes them in a way that is more physical in its manifestation and that you kind of again even if you don't really realize what he's doing you feel it and you feel that energy and why that is terror being able to pull these little nuances and these little pieces together to make these big conclusions that that's why I, that's why I love storytelling that's why I love this shit that Stephen King does and listen, I know this is
0: your list. If I was you, I would have had Dead Zone and The Outsider 2 and 3. Yeah, fair enough. The Outsider 2, because it is amazing. But, I mean, all all the things you picked are amazing. So, well, well done on Thank you. you. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. It's a good start. Uh, so, let's go to my number four briefly. This is Stand By Me. This is a classic Rob Reiner's 1986 film, I believe. Sometime in the mid to late 80s. Mm. Um, this is one of... River Phoenix's earliest movie performances, and it's hard to separate that from this movie. I picked this one mostly because it holds a special place in my heart. I think it's one of the sweetest, purest, most tender King stories. Mm -hmm. I have another one on my list that's also that. Um, But I think this captures something so unique about childhood groups of friends and going on adventures together and sure the heights are staken because it's a dead body in this but like we've all been on that kind of adventure where you go to explore something with friends and there's something so relatable about that and I just love stand by me the leeches scene sticks with me forever (laughs) in both a good and like (laughs) kind of like horrifying way. so it still has some of those like horror elements but not really it's not a horror story this is just a sweet feel good film about childhood nostalgia memory and loss because ultimately the conceit here is that one of the characters is a writer again Stephen King's avatar
1: every this is something (laughs) I want to bring up every story every movie every adaptation somebody is a writer somebody is dealing with writing one way or the other
0: Yeah I mean it's Stephen King dealing with his own persona as a writer and all these things but Every he's, time. he's remembering this kind of childhood story and that's what it is and it's just a sweet tender film that I love to return to and it captures something so pure about childhood in the same way that something like The Sandlot does Yeah, um, yeah. and those are two of just my favorite kind of childhood films that work as an adult as well
1: Yeah and in the dialogue too, you just remember that's just how kids talk yeah. they just kind of to, they, they're a little crude. They're testing their crudeness and they're testing the limits of what they're able to say. And so it and is... And they don't even understand what they're saying? No. Yep. And like, half the time, they're just regurgitating quips that they've heard adults say or they've seen on TV. Just what is the excuse I can use to say the word fuck? And yes. Like, yep. Bump, Let's just, we're going to invent <laughs> them. So I just watched this movie for the very first time in preparation for this. I'd never seen this before. Whoa. I knew I, I didn't even know the story and part of me wanted to read the story beforehand, but no, I just sat down and watched it, and was just—it's—it's it's amazing that King's style and his approach to storytelling is so prevalent, even with something like this that's not horror and that's not traditional. The tension building, the the visual, the leech scene, yeah, it's—it's it's so clear, just drawing on, and you know, and the childhood and the kids becoming adults and finding their way and. Hitting puberty and trying to understand themselves and what the world looks like when you lose the innocence and the naivety.
0: I mean, the, the the question I have based on that is like, you just came into this as an adult, but it still hit for you.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah every beat, every beat was great, and you know, and again, and I'm watching it as a King fan and knowing and knowing some of Stephen King's darker works, and so like watching the train scene when they're trapped on the bridge, running it genuinely one of my favorites genuinely scary because you just don't know because I just know him and I know what he is capable of as a storyteller (laughs) and I'm I'm expecting these kids to die yeah when when the pudgy kid falls down on the tracks I thought that's it I thought that's over
0: it's done yep All right. so that is both of our number fives and number fours we're getting into it now yeah what is your number three
1: my number three uh, I might switch it up from what I was originally thinking. I think I'm going to do Gerald's Game for number 3. I I don't remember if I knew that this was a Stephen King movie the first time I watched it when it came out or you know what? I think that I did know it because I saw it advertised on Netflix as a woman tied to a bed and thought I can't I need to wait until Everyone has left the house to engage in whatever this is. Um, And then I heard it was Stephen King and said, oh, okay, no, I'll give it a shot. No, this is is highbrow art. I I love that actress and fine, bring it on. Um, But it was, oh my God, it was so surprising how good it was. Yeah. I was blown away by that movie.
0: I think it's such a brilliant conceit of a movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if you're unfamiliar, basically a woman and her husband retreat to a kind of, lake house location that's far away in an effort to rekindle their relationship they're struggling which is failing right and in that effort they part of it try is the some sexual kinky nature. sex stuff yeah, and yeah. she gets tied to the bed but then he
1: has a heart attack he has a heart attack in the middle of it <laughs> yeah. and
0: she is now trapped there and honestly like when i read that conceit i was like this has to be a short film how are you gonna extend um, yeah, this to an that, hour and a half yes and then it worked completely. And I was in because it was a Flanagan movie, like yep. regardless of King. And then Carlo Giugino, the main actor. So like like you said, amazing. And just remarkable how it worked so well, like you said. And w- what
1: worked about it uh, I, to you? I, right. For me, it was the I, this single location horror, mm-hmm. as I think you've done on another episode of this, is uh, being able to come up with that much in that short of a time. And, you know, and the days are passing and like, and the amount of time that it's taking to tell this story while being in, and you also, it's so realistic, someone trapped in there or traumatized like that, trying to figure out how to get out of it, that you, as an audience member, are forgiving when it's like, oh shit, right, the water glass is up there. Can you get that? Like, she takes a while to remember that and figure that
0: out. Right, and that's something that I loved about it because there's so many... Things that aren't necessarily horror, it's just like problem solving elements.
1: Yeah. Like it's how almost do mystery. We, it's yeah. almost a mystery movie. Yeah. And
0: how do we get out of this situation? And one of the things that you were mentioning that's tough to adapt about King's novels is that there's so much interior dialogue. Yes. And on the surface, a lot of those things seem silly in this movie, but they work. They work and really that well. that is just an accomplishment in and of itself.
1: By both those actors. Yes. yes. They sell it. Yes. They're really they're they're Bruce Greenwood
0: is the the yes, man Greenwood. and uh, Carla Gugino like they just pull it off. The whole so thing well. hinges
1: on their performances yeah. and they crush it and that just and you're right. It does seem silly. It is a silly gimmick. It's a silly thing to do. Again, it's the campiness and the corniness and like all right now she's talking to her dead husband and they're just playing. But when you Think about it that way And they do kind of like Drop the curtain a little bit And be like No, no, no She is imagining this This is in her head This is all of Everything that he is saying Are her own assumptions And knowledge Informing what She thinks her husband Will be saying to her And it's all information That she has It's her brain And so when you and they and they do kind of acknowledge that a couple of times. He says it. He's like, I'm, "What are you talking about? Who are you talking to?" Right. I'm I'm there. I'm on the ground being eaten by a dog. Like, yeah. um, and that there's humor in that when oh, they acknowledge sure. it, and it's like yes. a winking humor. King's hysterical. Yeah. King is really funny. I mean, uh, I'll read some of the some of his books and just and genuinely laugh out loud at the absurdity of it and some of the lines. And he he is someone that remembers everything that he hears. He doesn't have a photographic memory maybe, but a an auditory character memory. When you when you read what he writes, it's so the idioms and the stereotypes and the just figures of speech that he writes with, it's like how who do you talk to that talks like this? Because these are all real phrases that I've heard and some of them I haven't heard, but I can't imagine he made them up. So it's like, who are the people that you've been hanging out with in your youth, in your coked up party youth that you remember these strange lines and the people are just, the people are slightly hyperbolic, but real. And you know, people that talk like that. 100%. Yeah. I mean,
0: I think the thing that you mentioned about this being so surprising in how good it is, because it shouldn't be. No. But it works, and I think a lot of that is down to Mike Flanagan.
1: It's Flanagan, and it's those performances. Yes,
0: and if you don't have that level of filmmaker, this falls all sorts of. I flag. can
1: you can see it. You can yeah. you can imagine the same premise and the same uh, story in somebody else's hands, and it's just and it would be campy and dumb and as absurd as it actually is. But there's there's this injection of seriousness into it but like i was saying while acknowledging what it is it's this is absurd this is funny and we should try to find the humor in it and then the audience will forgive you for it being campy yeah 100% yeah big props to mike flanagan yeah and you know
0: it kind of provides a perfect segue into my number 3 film another completely campy movie that should not work at all and in different hands wouldn't have worked but in the hands of john carpenter my fucking god did it work and it is 1983's christine about a car that has jealousy emotions Mm -hmm. and is killing people and turning its owner into a crazy person This movie should not work at all, but it totally works. It's one of the most fun King movies. It's a wild ride. The music cues. Music's amazing. Just everything in this movie has Carpenter's fingerprints all over it, and it's amazing. How'd you feel? Because you hadn't seen it before, right? I
1: hadn't seen it or read it. So So what I did, Christina's one of the few Stephen King stories that... I haven't read, and I also don't know anything about. Like, I know the I know the hook, killer car, right. but I don't know the story at all. And so, before I watched the movie, I wanted to read it, and so I did. So, about a week ago, I found it, I picked it up, and I blew through it in like three days, so that I could watch the movie before we did this. And it's, it's that 80, like Cujo era, no holds barred, relentless, uh, just, Total destruction um, of any and everyone that finds itself in the movie. Um, So I loved it. I loved what they were able to do, what Carpenter was able to do with the story. This is another one that I think someone's got to make it into a miniseries and really go through all of the beats of the book. Because you have not
0: read the book? I've I've literally read like one King novel start to finish. Gotcha. (laughs) What was it? The Green Mile. I think there's just something about the populist nature where like, I'm kind of a snob. So like, I'm like, eh, that's over here. Sure. But now that I'm older and I don't give a shit about all that, like I'm more open to it, but I actually got into Thomas Harris instead. Okay. And the whole Hannibal thing. uh, That's just
1: more. I have that book and I haven't read it yet. And that's, (laughs) that's one of the next endeavors that I need to undertake. Um, but no, Christine. (laughs) So back to Christine, um, There were two huge elements of the book that were left out of the movie, Um, and I understand why. Again, for the sake of time and brevity, which is why I really would love to see, you know, future filmmakers out there take a swing at this one, go bother his agent, try to get a dollar baby out of the Christine TV series. They combined the characters of um, the guy that sells him the car, LeBay. In the movie, he's dead, at the time that he comes to get the car and it's his weird creepy brother that sells it to him. In the book, Lebay's still alive and I think is essentially what they painted the brother as in the movie, just a crass, crude, you know, smoking back brace just d- disgusting human being doesn't care what other people think, just says whatever's on his mind. Right. And um, and so he sells him the car and then he ends up dying. And so it's implied in the book that Lebay's ghost is the th- is the entity that is in Christine and it's also kind of ambiguous as to whether or not Christine is her own thing that's been around since she was made but Lebay is like it's it's a story about his his spirit and his demon and his ghost in the car and taking hold of Arnie as he makes this transformation. And that's another thing about the movie that, you know, they couldn't do for time, but the relationship between him and Lee is much longer. And you see his transformation from nerdy, acne, pizza faced, as they say in the book, just loser to this dude, who's just a little bit more confident. It's it's that classic, the correction happens, and then it's an overcorrection to your detriment. No, and I think
0: that's the brilliant thing about this movie. I think that the way that it kind of turns the bullied into the bully, mm-hmm. and the way that it explores yes. that theme of how it's so easy for one to become the other. Yes, and all it takes is a little bit of confidence, and then all that past trauma that you've went through through being made fun of and you know worked over just like completely goes the other way. And I mean, that's just it's what a snake bully eating is. its yeah. own
1: tail just circles back on itself. Exactly, and, this and it's
0: brilliant. But there's a car at the center of this transformation, yes. which is the ridiculous part. But it works because of Carpenter, because of the actors. Oh. Arnie is amazing in this movie.
1: Arnie's amazing in this. Dennis is amazing in this. And um, and yeah, and the music too. The music is something that like he he put in the book. He kind of suggested songs and tried to. But it, you can't you can't read music and then have it play over what you're reading next the way that that mm, 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 yeah, mm, when moochie welch is all walking through the parking lot all i love that that scene. they play to ki- just
0: like the kills are all set to these oldie the tunes. kills are all
1: great and the kills were different in the a little bit different in the book too and this is what i want to talk about with the pulling punches is moochie welch in the in the movie Oh, he gets pinned, he gets cornered, and then Christine just slowly kind of pins him and crushes him against the wall, and you don't really see it. In the book, he gets literally knocked out of his shoes running across the street, <laughs> hits a, sh- a brick shop wall and bounces off of it, and then gets run over and backed up over and run over and backed up over to the police detective that's talking to Arnie. He says, you-, you couldn't recognize him. He had to scrape his legs up with a shovel. Like... And then, and then um, Buddy Repperton is driving, uh, and and that's part of the the book too. That's just really great. Although I did like the movie version of how he died, the, car, the shot from the, the car, car, on car fire, as he chases him. Oh my god! Shot from the car as he chases him, and then the shot of his a flame body rolling out from behind the car. Yeah. was the appropriate amount of brutal. Yes. for me, I was very satisfied with that. But the the, the book is just so violent and visceral in how these kills happen that I, I really want, I really want to see a mini series of Christine updated to, to work through these characters and these transformations and, and don't pull punches as much.
0: <laughs> I mean, Christine is just brilliant. If you have never seen it, this is probably one of the lesser known King adaptations mm-hmm. and Carpenter just nails it. my, Probably my favorite part of the entire movie is when it cuts to black and bad to the bonus plan. Yeah, yeah. It's such a fun way. The use of music a wild ride like
1: the this. use of music just yeah. elevated it to that level Whole and that status. People. I mean
0: Carpenter's command of music is just impeccable. Yes. Every movie. Halloween is one of the most iconic
1: scores and he wrote that shit because yeah. he just Yeah, I didn't he realize he wrote it. the music for Christine too. Yeah. Um there was one more thing I was gonna say about it. What was it? that I really liked about the movie, oh, the the use of what I assume is flawless stop motion to have the car heal itself. Yeah. I was watching that. I mean, what's the, the, what, what, the movie from the, the late like, 80s? It's like, that stop motion is, uh, again, what I assume is stop motion because it was so seamless and so good looking, was amazing. I was trying to figure out whether it was
0: stop motion or like they played it in reverse, like they destroyed the car. And then
1: showed it. Yeah, but there were there were shots where the metal was exactly was was rebending. It's and it's like, but and you didn't see. I I mean, short of people, I don't even know how that would work. Short of people inside of a vehicle, like with some sort of (laughs) tool that pulls metal in a car like that. But it it, it was silky smooth.
0: It's so good, and I, I there's a lot like you said. Like there's just a lot of scenes in shots in that where I was just trying to decide how it worked and I just I was like I can't I'm just I'm just gonna give myself over to this filmmaking because wow
1: especially with the 80s the 80s you feel like especially people that have no films or analyze them or been on set or know what behind the curtain looks like it's like I shouldn't be getting fooled By an 80s movie. You shouldn't be second guessing what's happening and how they're pulling off their shot.
0: Yeah. And now it would just be CGI and that's bullshit. But like they pulled it off without any of that. CGI
1: would not. It wouldn't even look this good. It wouldn't. Yeah, it wouldn't. It's crazy. I don't understand. Not even comparable. (laughs) All right. So let's go to your number two. What do you got? My number two was I was weighing the two kind of big classics. Uh, And I went with Green Mile over Shawshank, only because my personal connection to Green Mile is it's the first movie that I can remember emoting to when uh, we were in, I don't know if we were going on a trip to Maine or something, we were in a long car ride with my family and we had a minivan with one of the little flip down TVs and we watched Green Mile as like a 12 year old, probably because my parents forgot how heavy that movie is, how Devastating that story is, and uh, we watched on a little flip TV in the back of a uh, uh, TV in the back of a minivan, and uh, the execution scene of the uh, of the inmate with the mouse. There was no I'd never seen before a villain or just someone do such horrible things in a movie before as Percy when he tells him that his mouse died and isn't in mouse heaven like everyone has been telling him, doesn't put the sponge in the water, puts it on his head, and lets him fry for three minutes. That's the scene I read
0: the first time when I got introduced to this book, and that's what Jerby because in because yeah. it's brutal.
1: It's, it's, it made me so angry, and I remember that vividly, being tw- like 12 years old in the back of a van, being just so mad, and I think from what I remember, the first time crying at a movie because of what it was making me feeling like. And the and the rest of it, and the rest of that movie, and, and Coffee d- denying the ability to escape and just facing his death and saying that the world is too grotesque and cold and brutal for him to exist in it. And then... Tom Hanks' character having to suffer with the knowledge that, well, maybe it is awful and I'm being punished by being alive in it still. Like, the way that the philosophies of the characters change over the course of the movie is so hard to watch. It is. It all
0: hinges on the Hanks and Michael Clark Duncan performances. Yes. And they pull it off brilliantly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a three-hour movie, so, like, you're in for the long haul, but, like, it doesn't ever feel slow no. stretched out it's it's a really heart-wrenching tale it's no. a sweet movie at the at the core even though a lot of horrifying things happen
1: it's a sweet movie <laughs> i don't know if the thematic takeaway is very sweet i think it's probably pessimistic at the yes, end of the day for sure but um yeah it's just but i this is actually one's i didn't rewatch only because the the 3 hour the three runtime hour. yeah hindered me um But yeah, everything that I remember of it and having that connection to it, and I should probably note at this point, uh, at this juncture, that Frank Darabont is the one who uh, wrote and directed this, same guy that did Shawshank and same guy that did The Mist. And the kind of, uh, the twist connection to Darabont that I have now is Darabont did one of the Dollar Baby movies back in the 80s, and that's the reason that he is Frank Darabont now. He did a movie called The Woman in the Room, and... King liked it so much that he let him option another thing, which ended up being Shawshank Redemption, and now that's Shawshank Redemption. So he optioned in that same time period with the green, this success, the Green Mile, and all that. He optioned two other stories, The Long Walk, which you should read; it's amazing, and The Monkey. And so Frank Darabont had the rights to The Monkey for years, and couldn't figure out how to turn it into a marketable feature and he let the clock run out on it. So I think that that's part of the reason that I got this opportunity is because the tried and true Stephen King adapter didn't, know what to do with it and so it just it went back to King and I think it's probably just been sitting on a shelf ever since and so when some young plucky idiot upstate New York <laughs> dude swears that he wants to do it for no money it just seems like there's zero risk and all the opportunity for them yeah I mean Darabont he's probably the peak King adapter right? absolutely especially if you love the mist as much as you do that must put everything up yeah, at top level for the you. *The Mist*,
0: *Shawshank Redemption*, *Green Mile*. I mean, three classics. Yes. I think. Yeah, um, no, I agree. And I mean, the only other one who's probably in the conversation is Reiner because he did two classics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but know.
1: not. They're not. If, it's met not, with the same no. acclaim no. at all. Definitely not. Not I mean, objective. *Shawshank*
0: clout. is probably the most well liked movie. I mean, it's number one on the IMDb user rating, which means nothing, but also yeah,
1: but also when you watch it, you go, okay, fine,
0: I get it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard to argue with. Yeah, and speaking of, that is my number two, The Shawshank Redemption. (laughs) Look at that transition, uh, directed by Frank Darabont. And this is the other one. I mentioned how I had a couple of sweet, tender movies, and Shawshank Redemption again, while a bunch of horrific things happen. At the center of this film is the Andy Dufresne and Red relationship, which is just bromance goals. Top level peak bromance goals. Absolutely.
1: That's adorable.
0: (laughs) And, you know, I just have a very strong connection with this from my childhood. This is one that I watched with my dad all the time and he introduced me to. And, you know, it's never going to leave that. And so I do think it's a brilliant movie. I do think there's so many memorable scenes that you can latch on to the, you know, lightning striking and him celebrating being out the tarring the roof scene with the beers and that, that idea of a cold beer at the end of a hard day's yeah. work. Mm-hmm. Like there's just so many things from this film that stick with me from childhood and that, that now that I'm adult and I get yeah, like it just sticks that and it's hit, like, yeah, wow, hits even harder. It hits yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it, it hits every moment. Stuff. It's like that. It's yeah.
1: just cold beer,
0: cold it's and cold beer
1: after working on a roof for yeah.
0: 10 hours. Exactly. And it's it's things like that that make that film so enduring. Yes. The little details. Yep. And so, you know, it's at the top of the IMDb list of user ratings for a reason. Yes. And there's not a whole lot to say except that it's a brilliant movie. And this is the one where I was like, I just can't leave it off. You can't.
1: Yeah. And and th- again, even the tragic moments of it. I I like King because sometimes he does do uh I don't wanna say senseless violence. There's always kind of a, a, a reason inherently story wise for it. But he was pretty brutal back in the day. And uh I like things like, like
0: something over multiple
1: times in Christine. Oh, so much. So much. I mean, it felt good in the story, felt reading good. it. It feels worth
0: it, but it's a lot. When
1: It's it's really amazing to me when you can make a villain and then and then have them have their comeuppance, but then have it go too far and then you start to, oh, but I don't know if he deserves that. Like that's that kind of yeah. storytelling that I like. And so uh, that's what I like about things like The Green Mile and about, um, Shawshank is that some of the brutal things that happen are so motivated by what's right for the story and what's right to do and it's not senseless the guy who uh, can testify again you know with Dufresne saying that no, no no I met the dude in a jail cell who agreed to this getting smoked it's like yeah this, this pushes the story forward in a really realistic and affecting way and that's what that's where that tragic element comes from and that's where those emotions come from when you're watching this is that you the audience knows it's the right call the audience knows that it's the inevitable fact of talking like that and and making those decisions as a character yeah
0: and you know two thoughts on that like the other one is the older character i'm forgetting his name right now oh, the um, older character who gets out and then becomes a grocer and hangs himself Because of this whole idea of just locked in, like it hurts. Yes. And the second thing is just fuck the warden. Fuck
1: that guy. Fuck the warden all the way. I haven't read the I haven't read the book, but it sounds like uh, they they combined a couple different characters into the one warden to make him as evil and singular as possible. And and fuck that guy so. Mill is it Mills? Mills. Mills. That's the one.
0: Mills. I was like Meeks when he. When he hangs himself, man... That's um, so tough. It's, it's brutal. It's so um, tough. You know, if you haven't seen The Shawshank Redemption, what are you doing? But also go watch it, like, immediately. Yeah. It's one of the most brilliant movies ever made. Yeah,
1: and Mills kills himself.
0: It's... Uh, it's it, it brings out all the feels. You know? People, yeah.
1: Every... It, it, the whole spectrum of emotion.
0: People like to talk about Rudy as, like, a guy cry movie. No. <laughs> it's, <first laughs> it's Shawshank. <laughs>
1: Fuck Rudy. Watch Shawshank instead. Oh,
0: Rudy. All right. So... We've reached number one time. Spencer, what do you
1: got? All right. I'm going with Misery. I'm going with the big M. This is one that I've read. I read the book and was very seriously impacted by reading this book. Uh, and then I, I watched the movie for the first time, I think, like two years ago. And was this is, there's very little to get wrong Unless you go way off the rails and Rob Reiner just focused right in mm-hmm. and cracked it with the... Ca- I mean, it's its all in the casting here. It Between is. I think Kathy Bates and James Conn, it's just... There's only the two characters. Apparently, James Conn was like
0: the 20th choice for this. Really? Yeah. I read something... I didn't know that. There's just this laundry list of great, phenomenal actors who ended up turning it down. But ultimately, I think James Conda is fucking brilliant.
1: It was great. Yeah. I I loved every second of that movie. And this is an interesting case of, I think, not pulling the punch, but the opposite, where in the book, he gets his leg chopped off. He gets his foot chopped off. And it was so much more brutal watching her smash it with a sledgehammer against a block. Uh Uh-huh. Really tough. Whatever visual effect they used for that was incredibly visceral and uh, again, Academy Bates won an Oscar for it. Mm-hmm. Everything about this, just they nailed it. They capture the tone and the and the mood, and he captured that in the movie so perfectly that the way he is trapped and isolated and the hopelessness of the situation really comes through. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think it's appropriate to have it at number one because this is the best Stephen King novel about Stephen King. <laughs> yeah, true. And like, this is the best time that he's been brought to life in this way. Yep. And this idea of the kind of insane fandom that surrounds someone yeah, like that. Yeah, that he
1: had some sort of weird interaction with somebody once and was so spooked by it that he just started. And I, I just read his book On Writing where he really talks about some of the inspiration for this and kind of the tactics and him talking about, like, you have the ideas and you just you, you put those initial two ideas together and then the story almost just kind of forms and writes itself and you see where it's going. And it's, it's almost like the inevitable conclusion of the premise that you've set up. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, this is just so much fun and easy to do. And injecting all of these rational fears and thoughts into this story is so prevalent. And, oh, you know, the audience is aware of it. Yeah. And I think
0: the fact that he makes the avatar of himself rather unlikable Oh yeah, he's grumpy. This is a grumpy old man. This is a movie about two villains. Yes, and them playing a game of wits against one another.
1: Yeah, and the simplicity of that, and again, the single location horror movie, pretty much again, and what you can mine from that. Exactly,
0: it's just so impressive. It's 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 really an amazing movie. You know, I was doing something very specific where. You sent me your list first, and I was trying not to overlap. Misery would have absolutely
1: been like, yeah, I know, you know, it's, if it's, it's
0: shining mist, misery. Like those are the three best, yeah, objectively and, speaking to me.
1: And Annie Wilkes's character and amazing, the, and the, right? And the no swearing thing yeah. and the no, she gets, she gets upset that she swore, and then she gets mad at him for making her swear, and the and the duty. And and all that language and that, again, it's those idioms and the, those weird things that you know he heard at some point in his life and has just been carrying around until this moment to drop into this character in the story. Yeah, and it's so goofy and it,
0: it injects some levity, but at the same time, it doesn't because it's horrifying. It's horrible. Yeah, <laughs> and like she's just so convincing. Kathy Bates in this movie is amazing. Mm-hmm. If she didn't win the Oscar, like, just shame. There's a lot of shame on the Oscars, but this is one of the times they got it right. Yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's that. It's what I was talking about, that that levity that gets twisted into it. When it goes too far, now it's a horrific thing to witness. And this is something that—and Stephen King does the same thing with those things. Annie Wilkes at the beginning is cutesy and dopey and funny. And when you're watching James Conn's character be mean to her and kind of patronizing to her— you're just watching, she's not really doing a whole lot different after she starts becoming violent, but now you're just seeing it in this different light, this different tone.
0: And even as she is being gof- goofy and dopey, there's just enough breadcrumbs that there's something amiss yes. with her. Yes. And so you know. Yep. And, you know, what, what you're mentioning here, like, again, in the wrong hands, that feels like a tonal inconsistency in the movie and it takes you out of the movie. Yes. And while it rips you away, it doesn't take you out of the movie. You're still there for it because you're invested. Right. And I think that's just, it's something that only the best
1: can do. It does take an understanding of those elements and why they work together, not just them by themselves. Yeah.
0: And once again, I think it's a perfect segue to the funniest and most horrifying Stephen Kent adaptation, Carrie. My number one. Yep. I think this movie is absolutely hysterical and also absolutely it's so dramatic. Yeah, it's so it's over so melodramatic. It's, so
1: over the, top. it's it, the subject matter and the things that happen are so absurd and hyperbolic that it, it is. It's funny. Yeah, but it's also like whoa. Yeah, it's serious. T- it, like it acknowledges and taps into the same thing it that it's the perfect balance and this is why i really like the christine story too he really does well with that middle ground just after you're a kid but before you really know how to who be an you adult are and... and how to be right and so finding finding that that awkward tense soul searching personality developing adolescent is, is so effective in the, in the way that it can blend those two things.
0: Yeah. And so Carrie is my number one. I have loved Carrie my entire life since I first saw it. Yeah. I think that it's so many things in one. It is comedic and humorous. It is absolutely terrifying. It's romantic and whimsical in parts. Mm-hmm. And it blends all those things perfectly under Brian DeBalma's direction This is by far, I think, the best De Palma film. And, you know, the one scene that strikes sticks with me forever. And I mean, it's the entire prom sequence, but it's the one where they're dancing Mm -hmm. and they're spinning and it's just this like dizzying, delightful, romantic thing. And so when it flips... It makes it that much more horrifying. Yeah, it's the juxtaposition. It's the juxtaposition of It's give them the calm before the storm
1: and the joyous calm before the storm. And a
0: little bit of hope that like maybe it's not gonna go that way, but you know it's gonna fucking go that way. That's
1: my favorite. That's my favorite thing that King does in in the books. He builds the tension by letting you know that the thing is gonna happen and then watching you hope that it's going to go the other way somehow. Yeah. And I think it's something
0: that Brian De Palma captures so perfectly in Carrie. Yes, and the way you have complicated feelings about everyone who's trapped in that gym. Yeah. Like, yeah. The you know quote unquote boyfriend, he really wasn't in on the whole prank, right? And he just gets knocked out. Oh yeah. And then he dies with everyone else. Ruthless. And that's 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 complicated. Yeah. It's but a- then everyone else gets theirs, and you feel great about it but then the teacher's there and she gets smashed and like
1: but it goes again you're going over that hump of like okay you got what was coming to you ooh but now you're burning alive in a gym like it's tough it's tough watching this gray area and these people make decisions that you root for but then you watch them go too far and you and then you stop rooting for them. It's a very that anti-hero breaking bad esque like hey can you rein it in a little bit? Yeah. It's tough. Did you see the new one? The
0: the the one with the Chloe Grace Moretz? Yeah. I did.
1: nah. Yeah. I like Julianne Moore a lot.
0: I do. I'm a huge fan of her. I love Chloe Grace Moretz. I really do and Mm -hmm. I love Julianne Moore. And you know, just in general, like, not a huge fan of remakes. No. Unless you're going to do something different and do unique something with it. Do something which they didn't. And they didn't. It's not the same all. movie. Beat by beat. The, the first one was better. Just leave it alone.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love Julianne Moore, and I remember when I saw that trailer first, that was what hooked me, and I was like, oh, I want to go see that, because she. it was a cool role, and it looked like she was going to crush it. And to an extent, she did. I just watched Lisey's story which is another Julian Moore, Stephen King thing. I read the book this year, and so did my girlfriend, which (laughs) hit a little harder for her. Uh, My lovely girlfriend of a couple years now is a widow, and she started reading Lisey's story, which is a story about a woman whose writer, husband, died two years earlier, and she was reading it like, two years after her husband died and going through it. And that's part of... And she, I don't think she'd ever read a Stephen King book. No, I made her read Pet Cemetery when we started dating. Um, but it was... It's She even found it impressive, the level of empathy that King puts in the books and the stories. And the... You know, we're talking about this the style of writing and the anecdotes and the, you know, the idioms. And it's like... Really capturing human essence and human emotion, and you know, as, as far as I know, he's never had his husband die, but he knew the types of things uh, to, you would feel. You yeah. would feel to write in there as, as just a lonely person. Yeah. So that yeah. brings us to the end. This is it.
0: Before we get out of here, last time, so everyone knows where where can we find your stuff online, so we can donate and support. This Stephen King adaptation—the first time it's ever been done—the Monkey. Where can we? Where can we support you?
1: Go on Facebook or Instagram. It's at the Monkey Short. Only because someone swiped the Monkey Short film out from underneath me about a week before I made the campaign. Uh, Was it so Frank go, Darabont? No. <laughs> <laughs> nope. But I'll shoot him an email to make sure. Um, so yeah, go to at the Monkey Short at Facebook or Instagram. Uh, there's a lot of really cool. Opportunities we're trying to put out there to be a part of it. If you're a local Capital Region artist, um, please come talk to me because I'm always looking for new ways to involve other people's stuff in what I'm doing. This is overwhelming and a lot, and I need help, so please reach out. <laughs> Uh, help me, help me, help me. Uh, God damn it. This is hard. Um, and then, uh, there's an Indiegogo that you can find on both Facebook and Instagram. Um, if not just Google the monkey short film on Indiegogo. So please check it out. It's, it's happening. Uh, shooting begins in May and, uh, I'll be casting and crewing up in the months leading up to it. So hopefully, uh, stay tuned. And by September of October next year, You'll be able to watch it. We'll do a big premiere down at the Spectrum 8. Ooh. I love the Spectrum.
0: Landmark Spectrum is... It's always been my favorite theater. I yep. love that I place, I go to man.
1: the uh, the proud owners of Delaware Supply, the beer bar next door that I also frequent, are executive producers of this movie. So awesome. patronize them, and we'll see you at the uh, the premiere party. Yeah.
0: I'm, I'm super pumped for you. I'm super pumped to see this thing. Thanks, man. Yeah. You know, I... I just love these local area films that are coming out and that we have so many creative people just doing stuff it's, and
1: really it's great and and really trying to get stuff made. And I, I know a lot of people that are just so eager and enthusiastic and that's part of why I moved back up here from New York is no one's no one's happy and uh, psyched for you down there no. to do your own little passion project and it's like no one wants to finish a 70 hour work week with working on your little short film on the weekend so when I came back up here I was very thrilled and uh, surprised by all the people in this area that are like no fuck you I'll make your film let's do it like what what do we got to do like you know don't worry about paying me or or you know I'll take a deeply discounted rate just to see you make stuff and, and, and you know collaborate and put out content so yeah. I, I mean, feel very fortunate that I, li-
0: I lived in the city for 10 years and it's just brutal
1: it just sucks your soul right out of your body and it's that's, like I, I like uh, I like quiet when I want quiet
0: all right so we got to get out of here you can follow us on at back porch media on instagram at Porchback media on twitter follow us on spotify apple Podcasts, all that stuff leave nice reviews and say nice things if you feel like it and that's about it for us see y'all